All right, we spent our time last week considering a phrase that is unique in that it only shows up in the book of Matthew. Does anyone remember what that phrase is? The kingdom of Mike? Yes, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Only shows up in the book of Matthew. I did note that it is a synonym with the kingdom of God that appears in Mark, Luke, and John. But we spent the brunt of our time considering the requirements for entering this kingdom. Namely, as Jesus says, you must be poor in spirit. You must recognize that there is a uh, a spiritual poverty that you possess. Uh, on the flip side of that, you must also possess a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. If you have any desire of entering the kingdom of heaven, you must be righteous. And obviously, Jesus is the key to entering the kingdom of heaven. It's only by his righteousness that we are allowed in. We also briefly looked at the hierarchy of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says a couple of times that the last will be first and the first last. He tells the disciples that the greatest among them must be the least in the kingdom of heaven, really just turning this idea of what we know about kingdoms on its head. And finally, we spent a lot, or the very end of last week, talking about our citizenship in this kingdom of heaven. I'm convinced that there is nothing more unifying than realizing that we have a shared citizenship, not in this kingdom, but in the kingdom to come. This week, as I was reflecting on this very idea, I was kind of rebuked, to be honest. I'll tell you why. Uh, If I see someone wearing a Michigan hat or logo, I will go talk to them, having never met them, I don't know if they're a serial killer. I don't really care. I know that they are from Michigan. I will talk to them. We can build a friendship off of a football team that we both cheer for. Should it not be more so for those of us who have Christ in common? That we're gathering every single week to worship the same Jesus? Can we not have a commonality and a friendship and a bond that is built over the shared love for Christ? Imagine if I, every single week, am swimming upstream, if you will, living for Jesus, denying my flesh, taking on my cross, and I find out that someone else is doing that too? Should not that that be the source of great unity? Man, we're in this together. So much more than someone who has a silly logo on their shirt or the same hobbies that you and I do. Our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven is really, really important. I'm convinced of that. All right, we spent a lot of time talking about the kingdom of heaven last week. Today, we are going to focus on the king. We read a lot about him this week, particularly his crucifixion, and I want us to consider what these last four, five, six chapters of Matthew have to say about King Jesus. So let's turn to Matthew 24 as we begin. Matthew 24. You may remember chapters 24 and 25 containing some things that were maybe just confusing to you. There's a lot of prophecy, a lot of talk about end time events 
right in the middle of one of these prophecies, we come across this in verse 29. Jesus is speaking here, and he says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. I just want to, distri- I just want to draw your mind to that description there in verse 30 of Jesus at his return, coming on the clouds of heaven with power and and great glory. This stands in total contrast to Jesus' first coming. His first coming could be described as unremarkable, as humble. He was easily missed. The second time around is going to be a demonstration of Jesus' power and glory that you cannot miss. Everyone's going to see this. Let's look at chapter 25. Just one chapter over. Verse 31, still talking about these future events, Jesus again says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. I'll pause right here. Again, we have the similar words of Jesus having this glory, sitting on a throne. The texts give us some more details. As he's on this throne, there are these two groups in front of him, the sheep and the goats, kind of the classic images for believers and unbelievers. You can almost see it in your mind's eye, just this huge swath of people spread out before Jesus, being divided sheep and goats. Look at verse 34. I love this verse. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I said I love verse 34. It's because of this title king that is used to describe Jesus. There's just something about the title king that carries more weight than even president or prime minister. You know here that when Jesus is called king. His word is law. He is judging these people. For those who are blessed by the Father, they inherit eternal life. But notice what happens to those in verse 41, where the goats, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For those who are the goats, or the unbelievers, they face eternal judgment. And as I was just thinking about this, I was reminded that Jesus' kingship, his power, his glory, his title, his throne, they're not just for show. He's not a symbolic monarch like the king of England who has all of those things but none of the power. When we're told that Jesus is king, he's not just king in name only. He's king in power. And part of that power is the authority to judge. That is what he will do in the last days. He'll judge the sheep from the goats. 
I want to bring us back to where we are in the context of these chapters, though. Jesus is talking to his disciples about future events, all the while as he's giving this teaching about his future glory, his future power, his future kingship. He's living in what is most likely the last week of his life. He's on his way to the cross. I want us to notice how this king is received in these final chapters here. Obviously, we know about the events of the crucifixion, the horrors of it. We're not going to look at all of the details, just the ones that pertain uniquely to his kingship. So that begins in chapter 27. Matthew 27. We'll look at verse 11 first. Now Jesus stood before the governor, that's Pilate, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You've said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Here Jesus is standing before Pilate, the governor of Judea, and he's asked point blank, Jesus, are you king of the Jews? To which Jesus replies, you've said so yourself. He doesn't deny it. I couldn't help but think of uh, earlier in the book of Matthew when again another ruler in Israel is confronted with this idea that the king of the Jews is here, this time Herod in Matthew chapter 2. And what is his response? He tries to kill Jesus. He's threatened by the presence of the king of the Jews. Pilate's response is not as dramatic or sharp. He actually turns it over to the people and asks what he should do with this king of the Jews. They say, give us Barabbas. Notice verse 19, as he's right in the middle of these proceedings. We're told that besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat... Pilate's wife sent word to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. The irony is not lost on us here from verse 19, that here is Pilate sitting on his judgment seat, judging who? The judge of the earth. The judge we just considered from like a chapter or two ago. And what does Pilate do? He gives in to the whims of the people They're stirred up into this bloodlust, crucify Jesus. Can we not pause and appreciate that although human rulers are subject to being swayed by popular opinion, they are prone to making errors and judgments of people that King Jesus will not make these false judgments. Although he was the recipient of injustice, Jesus, when he sits on this throne, judging the goats from the sheep, He's not swayed by popular opinion or by the power or might of the person in front of them. He's just. He's truly just. Let's jump down to verse 27. After Pilate delivers him over to these soldiers, verse 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. 
the mockery of King Jesus here is sickening. There have been, there would have been several times during these events in which I would have lost my cool, gotten angry, said enough of this, I'll use whatever power I have at my disposal to just end all of this. Is that what Jesus does? No. He's humble. The very people that he created, that he is king of, are mocking him, rejecting him. And Jesus is humble throughout. Like Isaiah says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. The story continues in verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then the two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests, the scribes, the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. This mockery of Jesus that was just the Roman soldiers a couple verses earlier has now been broadened to include all of the passerby, the elders, the chief priests, even the two thieves on the cross on either side of him join in mocking him. Jesus, you said you're the son of God. You said you're king. You saved others. Get yourself off of this cross. What are you realizing about Jesus' responses throughout all of these interactions? I trust it's obvious. Yeah, Temi. He's obedient to the will of the Father? Yeah. Any other thoughts? What are, what are you appreciating it about Jesus from how he's being treated here in his response to unfair treatment? He loves people? Yep. I can't help but think that just his humility is on full display for us. So, so humble in, in being on the receiving end of these insults. His humility stands in stark contrast to leaders that we're used to, I think. Matthew 28 kind of rounds this all up for us. Where Matthew 27 ends on a dark day, Jesus' death, his burial, Matthew 28 is glorious. It becomes, it starts off, excuse me, with the women coming to the tomb, hearing those famous words from the angel, he's not here, for he is risen, as he said. Jesus relays instructions to the disciples to meet him in Galilee. And as the disciples are on the way to Galilee, we'll pick up our reading here in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This verse contains one of the key words from this whole book that is authority. Let me ask you, what are some of the things that Jesus has demonstrated authority over thus far in the book of Matthew? Claire, nature. I heard someone whisper something over here. 
The C, yep. Jeff. Disease, sickness. Temi. Demons, yes. He has the authority to forgive sins. We've seen his authority even in these last chapters that he will have to judge. But verse 18, if I can call it this, is kind of the cherry on top. The resurrected Jesus stands before his disciples and he says, all authority has been given to me. Now, other passages of scripture actually identify the resurrection as kind of the hinge or the turning point for the scope or the scale of Jesus' authority. I think Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1 captures this pretty well. I have it on the screen here for you. We read that according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, notice when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Notice that this happens after the resurrection. That Jesus has all things put under his feet. This is consistent with what we're seeing in Matthew 28, where Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. At Jesus' first coming, when he was on earth, he willingly laid aside his power and glory. He came as a servant. He was lowly. He was unremarkable. But after his resurrection, he's no longer just a subject in Rome's empire. He's no longer just a citizen of Israel. If I can borrow from the kid's song, Jesus is the king of the universe after his resurrection. That's on display for us here. There are some other passages of scripture that reiterate this. Uh, we'll skip Peter just now. Let me show you Daniel talking about Jesus and the power that he has. Uh, we've already seen this kind of quoted in Matthew, but we read in Daniel, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Here's what these passages of scripture, Matthew 28, Ephesians, Daniel, Peter, are all telling us. There is one person who wields sole authority over all things, and who is that person? It's Jesus. Now, normally, this concept of one person having sole authority kind of freaks Americans out, doesn't it? We don't generally like this concept. This reminds us of like medieval Europe, when there's a king whose word is law, and everyone under him just does whatever he says and is at the whim of his commands. Uh, we're maybe thinking like World War I, World War II era, when there's dictators who abuse their power. But given what we know thus far about Jesus, the king, as Matthew presents him, how he loves outcasts, the sick, children, how he's merciful and kind and humble, how he rebukes the, hip the hypocrites of his day and shows mercy to sinners, how he loves people so much that he would humbly die on a cross for them. After this portrayal of King Jesus, how do you feel about him having soul, soul authority and all power? We're excited for that, huh? Jesus is unlike 
any ruler we've ever encountered before. Matthew's painted an awesome picture of our king. We cannot wait for these things to be realized, as Revelation would describe them, when sin and death are no more. It's something awesome to, to look forward to. Very quickly, let's look at these last two verses in Matthew 28. After Jesus is done saying that all authority has been given to him, he doesn't say, now I'm going to Rome to set up my kingdom. He doesn't say, remember those guys who put me on the cross? I'm taking them out. No, he says, all authority has been given to me. 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. These are the very, very, very familiar verses to us. We call them the Great Commission, but I want us to consider their significance, particularly as they come right on the heels as to what Jesus just said about him having all authority. How do, should that coincide with the Great Commission? Jesus' authority and this command to make disciples. There's two ideas. Let me just rehearse them to you really, really quickly. First of all, knowing that Jesus has all authority, that he is the king as Matthew presents him to be, is his Instruction here in verses 19 and 20, are these just a suggestion? It's not. If Jesus is king, this is a command. Now, this isn't a command that your dad might give you to go take the trash out, Ugh, roll your eyes, mutter under your breath. If we realize that we were once blind on a trajectory towards hell, and that we were graciously and mercifully redeemed, then what could be better than engaging in this very task that Jesus has called us to do of telling other blind people about the plight that they are in and how Jesus saves. This command, at the end of the day, is a command, but this should be a joy for us to say, come to Jesus. Here's what he's done. Second quick thing. If Jesus has all authority then is he setting us up for failure in this task? Is he telling us to do something that is pointless, that he's not going to help us accomplish? What do you think? No. There's nothing more depressing than doing something that we know is futile or pointless. Here's just kind of a silly example. Are you going to shovel your driveway before the plow comes by? No. Because you know that plow is going to just throw all the snow right back in your driveway, and you're going to have to do that work twice. Jesus, as king and having authority over all things, is going to help us accomplish this very task of evangelizing the nations. When we really get down to the nuts and bolts of evangelism and conversion anyway, scripture tells us, really, you have a very small part of this whole thing anyway. It's God who draws people. It is God who does the work of removing blinders from eyes. It's God who changes hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. We really just have this very small task of proclaiming the good news, and God literally does everything else. So this is largely dependent on the work of God anyway. It's pretty easy from our perspective. Share Christ. God will do the rest. He has all authority. He's not willing that any should perish, right? God is with us. In this, King Jesus has given, as authority, he's given us a task that he will help us accomplish. I hope that you see the significance of verse 18, Jesus' authority to the Great Commission. Quickly, I want to give you a picture of 
Jesus reception in the future. I was kind of thinking Philippians 2. That's a great one, but you can't pass up Revelation 5. Let's just, let me read it for you. Here's this picture of Christ. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders bowed down and worshiped. This is the end goal of Jesus' kingship. Everything in creation worships him. And we get to participate in that right now through our obedience to him and through fulfilling his instructions to share this good news with the nations. All right. Let's switch over to answering the questions from this week. From Matthew 23, how would you summarize what Jesus' biggest grievance was with the lifestyle of the scribes and the Pharisees. We'll stop there. What was Jesus' biggest critique about the Pharisees? They were what? Hypocrites. Yeah. Can you imagine uh, standing in this crowd as Jesus is teaching and the very people that are supposed to be your religious leaders, Jesus is calling out? As it reads, it's just one after the other. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, hypocrites, hypocrites. What are you thinking? Uh, I, I imagine that for these people, as the people they, as the scribes and Pharisees are just being, you know, exposed, that what this is accomplishing is that Jesus is telling everyone there that the way into the kingdom of heaven is not by way of the Pharisee. If you think that it's through Pharisees you get to heaven, you're mistaken. Because even the most outwardly spiritual among you are full of dead man's bones inside. It's only through Christ that you have entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Let me ask you this. As I was just thinking about this whole text, the thought crossed my mind. Why was Jesus so upset with the scribes and Pharisees in particular? Right, Jesus encountered a lot of sinners, a lot of bad people, we might say, but we never see any woes against the tax collectors. We never see any woes against the prostitutes or the other sinful people that he interacted with. Why this group of people in particular? Any, any thoughts on that? Tell me. Yeah, let's, if you have your Bibles open, look at Matthew 23 really quickly. I think Temi hit it right on the head. Twenty-three uh, begins, I guess, in 13. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. I think Temi hit the nail right on the head. Jesus is so upset at these people because they are not just condemning themselves with their actions. They are actively condemning the people that are under their charge. I was reminded of what James says when he says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Hebrews 13 says that leaders... Those who keep watch over the souls of those in the church will give an account. The Bible is clear that for teachers of the word, there is a higher level of expectation for them. And Jesus is grieved that the scribes and the Pharisees are leading not just themselves, but scores of people away from the truth. I was also rebuked personally by what Jesus says about their position. They sit on the seat of Moses so you should listen to them. They do teach you God's word. When they're doing that faithfully, listen to them. But their actions, their lifestyle, do not follow. Just a reminder that, you know, as I think Jesus even says, they they preach, but they do not practice. There is an expectation that it's not just the words out of our mouth, but it's our lifestyle that is a testimony and that is required. How about this? Uh, Second part of question here. According to Jesus, what were the weightier matters of the law that the scribes and the Pharisees had neglected? Who has the answer to that question? Uh, Yeah, Lynn. Yes, the weightier matters they had neglected were justice, mercy, faithfulness. Exactly right. Uh, Second question. From Matthew 23, reflect again on verses 25 to 28. The religious leaders of Israel had become experts at looking very spiritual on the outside, but their hearts were full of wickedness. Then I asked you to just use those two psalms to prayerfully consider, you know, maybe some hypocrisy or hidden sins that we needed to confess. I realize this is rhetorical. This question is, so I I won't ask you to reveal your hidden sins here, but as I reflected on this whole chapter and really maybe the whole theme of Matthew, or one of the major themes, I couldn't help but think about this idea that we've come full circle on an idea that is just present here in the book. Uh, Certainly Jesus is attacking the lifestyles of the scribes and the Pharisees here, but the same is true for others. Let me ask you, what would we conclude about people who have a lot of piety, they talk a good game, they walk a good walk, but like Jesus says, they're a filthy cup on the inside, they're a tomb with bones on the inside. What would, what would we conclude about that kind of person? Maybe borrowing the language of Matthew, they bear no fruit. Yeah, Jesus is saying that evidence of true repentance and conversion is that it's not just the outside, it's the inside. If there's life inside of you, you're going to bear fruit. This is what's being revealed here about the Pharisees. They, they are dead on the inside. Let's go over to Matthew 24. 
verses 36 to 51 describe the return of Jesus Christ. Given that no one knows the day or the hour that he will return, what are Jesus' instructions for those who are on earth? We'll stop there. What does Jesus say for those who are on earth? How should they live? Yeah, as if he's coming soon. Does anyone have the exact wording from the text there? Stay awake. Yeah, Brooklyn, do you have the other one? Okay, Tammy? Yeah, be ready. Stay awake. You guys are all hitting the same thing. So let me ask you then, what do you think that faithfully living in expectation of the return of Jesus might look like practically? Any thoughts on that? If it's really true that Jesus could come back at any moment, how does that change how we live? What should we be living like? Claire? Yeah, be faithful. Yep. Fulfilling the Great Commission. Yeah. Any other ideas? Phil? Or, excuse me, T? <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah. Any other thoughts? You ever walk in on someone doing what they shouldn't be doing? A friend and I were reminiscing recently about... Uh, not something that I ever did or experienced, but it seemed to be kind of the joke at school that after lights out in the dorms, if the monitor were to come into your room and you were up talking with your friends, that immediately everyone should, you know, bow their head and close their eyes and pretend like they're praying. And who's gonna get in trouble for praying after lights out, right? You know, there's a sense of embarrassment, the, when you're caught not doing what you're supposed to be doing. How much more awkward if Jesus were to return and catch us not living for him? Something we need to think about. Should be a sense of urgency. Should be fulfilling the Great Commission, being faithful. Matthew 25. This is the second chapter in a row, which Jesus gives his disciples instructions on how to live as they expectantly await his return. Considering the amount of teaching dedicated to this topic, I'll ask you, do you think this is important to Jesus, yes or no? Yes, there's a ton of information about this. This matters. Then the rhetorical question, is it important to you? And I ask you to reflect again on your answers to yesterday's questions and elaborate on how you can live each day as if Jesus will return. I realize this is kind of a repeat question, but I'm curious if from those verses 35 to 40, that gave you a little bit more clarity or examples on how we should be living in light of Christ's return. Any comments on those verses? Julia. Yes. You said we should treat others as we would treat Jesus. Correct. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, I will be kind of upfront at the beginning here. There is some dispute as to what judgment this is and what group of people Jesus is talking to here. But at a minimum, generally, we're seeing that Jesus tells these people, hey, you visited me when I was sick. You came to me when I was in prison. You gave me food and water. And they're left scratching their heads like, 
I don't remember doing that. And Jesus says, well, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers, it's like you did it for me. Right? I mean, how many of us, if we saw Jesus walk in here, would get him a cup of water if he was thirsty, right? I mean, obviously. But he's saying, when you do that for the least of people, it's like you're doing it for me. Again, I think it's just reiterating this idea that our treatment of other people is evidence of new life that has taken root in our hearts. How we treat others is a fruit that we have been converted because it's the people who did nothing to those who were in need that Jesus condemns and sends into eternal judgment. We're hitting a lot, or harping on this idea rather, of bearing fruit. Uh, I think it is a significant theme here in the book of Matthew. Let's turn to 26. I asked you to describe the emotions that Jesus is feeling as he anticipates the suffering he is about to face in the next several hours. Let me ask you, what were Jesus' emotions like as he is anticipating the suffering of the cross? I'm sorry? He's troubled. He's sorrowful. Is he excited about this? No, I I think we see the humanity of Jesus on full display for us here. Who's excited about suffering? Right? He even asks the Father, if it's your will, can you take this cup from me? But in spite of these feelings, what is Jesus' primary concern? Doing God's will. Yeah, and then, again, a bit of a more thoughtful rhetorical question about what it would take for you to get to a place where you are more concerned about the glory of God than you are self-preservation. We want to answer that. Matthew 27. Just ask you to marvel at the humility of Jesus. We considered this already from the teaching portion this morning, but the creator of everything allowed himself to be mocked, reviled, crucified like a criminal, all to redeem us. And this wasn't just something Jesus did, but it's something that he expects of us as well, as Philippians 2 makes clear, that the mind of Christ needs to exist in us, in humility. Matthew 28. Remember that authority is one of the key words of this book. According to verse 18, what is the extent of of Jesus. Authority, again, we hit this already this morning, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Let me ask you, I'm curious if you guys had any additional ideas or thoughts. How might the reality of Jesus' authority over all things empower us to obey the Great Commission? What did you guys write? What did you think as you were trying to make a connection yourself between Jesus' authority and the Great, connection, and the great Commission? Copy? That's a great point. Yeah, I feel like that is maybe something that I didn't even draw to light there. But if Jesus has all authority, then this isn't a scary task. This isn't like, I'm in the minority here. Uh, I'm the weak one. No, the king is on our side. Yeah, great. Heather.
Hmm. Interesting, yeah. I think you're describing a boldness. Yeah, I think there should be a boldness that knowing Jesus has all authority emboldens us. All right, let's go. Let's do this. Any other thoughts? Mike. Yeah, Jesus has always fulfilled what he said he would do, and I assume we can take it to the bank that he will do that in the future as well. Totally. Yeah, Jesus has authority to even orchestrate our meetups with other people. Sweet. I did want to spend probably more time than we have on this last question here, but perhaps this can be part of the testimony time during our annual meeting. I wanted to ask you guys, now that you have read the whole book of Matthew, in a way, you're kind of experts on the book. You've studied it for yourself. You've read it for yourself. You've answered a bunch of questions. I mean, how awesome is this? We got like five sheets here full of questions from the book of Matthew. Let me ask you, how do you see the book fitting into the grand story of God's redemptive plan? And maybe if it's not that question particularly, how would you explain the book of Matthew in a sentence to a friend? What are some of the key takeaways that you have had from this book? I would love to hear your thoughts on this and then maybe later again today. But what'd you write for this question? Temi. Yes, the portrayal of King Jesus is amazing in Matthew. Titus, I saw your hand raised. Yes, Brenda. Yeah, yeah, I was actually going to take what Titus has said and just comment and maybe tie everything together. I have personally appreciated, like, Matthew's audience, his purpose in writing the book. If you're a Jewish person, you read the book of Matthew, there's no other conclusion than that Jesus is the Messiah. This is not still vague or ambiguous or nebulous, like, mm, I don't know who Jesus is. No, the Old Testament tells you Jesus' own authority and his works show you. The whole thrust of the book is showing us Jesus is the Messiah salvation is only through him. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful again for the study, for the book, for the opportunity you've given us to provoke one another to love and good works. I pray that you would continue to use your word in the coming months as we move on to Mark now and on to uh, more of the New Testament to just make us more like your son. Help us to bow our knee in submission and in reverence to this king. And it's in his name we pray. 
Amen.